it is the first time in a long time that we as Democrats have been able to take a breath and say, look at all these amazing things and amazing wins that we're bringing in for real people. And I think it's a huge opportunity as Democrats that we have. But for me, the sort of counter is that it's also a huge responsibility to make sure that voters are connecting those dots. And my hope is that we we are actually talking to our voters about that so that, it, that it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy of only negativity. You only talk to me when there is something negative to say. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Melissa Morales, executive director of Somos Votantes, an organization aimed at providing a centralized hub for research, messaging, training, and mobilization of Latino voters. She's also vice president of Civics Strategy Group and was previously executive director of SEIU Florida and state director of Win Justice Florida. And she's currently a Fannie Lou Hamer fellow. We had a good conversation about Melissa's path to activism and how she came to start a multi-million dollar Latino voter mobilization effort and what they did in 2020. Melissa is definitely worth your listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Melissa Morales of Somos Votantes. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Melissa, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Melissa Morales. I am the executive director of Somos Votantes and the president of Somos PAC. Um, We are a Latino voter mobilization organization whose mission is really to engage directly with Latino voters um, with the goal of helping these voters get out to vote um, and ultimately, bottom line, to elect candidates that are going to implement policies that will actually help our communities. I always ask people kind of their path to this. Where did you grow up? And I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because I feel like my path to, the, to you know what I do is actually why I'm so passionate about it. So I was born in San Angelo, Texas, multi-generation Texas Latino family, but we moved to rural Kansas, liberal Kansas, when I was about 10 years old. So that's where I spent, you know, most of my growing up years and also sort of the beginnings of what brought me to what I do, how I got into this. What brought your family to rural Kansas? I come from a really big Texas Mexican family. My mom is one of eight. My dad is one of 13. Um, So all of my aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody lives in San Angelo, Texas, and that's where we grew up. But my mom really wanted to, I think there's there's a lot of bad influences going on. I think 
you know, really had never been able to really make ends meet or, you know, make it happen for us there. So moved us to Kansas where her brother lived um, to really try to, to get us away from some bad influences and to give us a better life. I always grew up thinking that my family was just really bad luck. We just always had seemed to have really bad luck, right? Um, growing up with a single mom, she was working multiple jobs trying to make ends meet. You know, there was never really enough to go around. My dad um, went to prison when I was about 10, uh, and he was there until I graduated from high school. He got released about the week before I graduated from high school. Wow. Um, and so I just always thought it was, it was really bad luck for us. And so I was determined that we were going to turn that around, um, decided I was going to be the first in my family to graduate from high school, you know, go to, go to college, go to law school so I could be a lawyer who could help people like my dad. So I, I did, right? I, I graduated from high school, got to college and realized pretty quickly I was a political science major that um, we were not bad luck. These were pretty systemic policies that were put in place to purposely, you know, oppress people and to create these haves and these have nots. And so that was really eye opening for me, uh, you know, really got into the political science um, space and then graduated, went to law school, went to Michigan State Law School. Um, and when I got there, realized that it wasn't just those systems, it was the legal system as well, right? There were all these laws that were, it seemed so badly written, so badly implemented. And so I thought, okay, we've got bad laws. I need to go to the place where they're making these laws. So I uh, went to DC for a semester during law school, um, studied there, worked at the Senate for a summer, and realized pretty quickly that sometimes we have bad laws because we have bad electeds that always don't have our best interests at heart. So then change of plans, I'm going to work to get better people elected to these offices. So that's how I ended up in campaigns. Let me ask you a little bit about that, because I've talked to a lot of people who grew up in less privileged circumstances and who, through the kind of good luck and dint of their own effort and intellect, you know, got out, went to college, went to law school, let's say, found a good job. How do you understand that path for yourself compared to other people who are just as talented, maybe, but didn't sort of find a way out of it? How do you think about that? I do think there's often a little bit of survivor's guilt there. When I think about for every me, there's probably a hundred or a thousand me's who worked harder and were more talented and were a little bit smarter and still didn't make it. Like I have three siblings, two of whom still live here on liberal. I'm actually back here because I'm here to help take care of my brother who's undergoing medical difficulties. And my sister works at a local school. I'm really proud of the work that she does, but obviously not, you know, Washington, D.C. And I think for me that that's an even that's another sort of part of the passion that I bring to the work that I do because I see how hard my family works. It's not just about hard work. If it was about hard work, you know, my family would be millionaires sitting in some mansion right now. My dad works at the local beef packing plant. He works the night shift. He works 4 p.m. till midnight every night. And, you know, that it's I'm always sort of aware of that, which I think for me is why I'm not saying that we are proud to be hard workers, right? Like we're proud to try to provide for our family and everything that we do. My dad's very proud of his job. My sister's very proud of her job. But it should be just a little bit easier for people, right? There shouldn't be policies that are actively put in place to keep them down. And I think for me, that's why getting good people elected is also so important. I see the people who are struggling to make it and doing everything they possibly can, and it's still not happening. 
there's a different perspective in having lived in a family that struggled and a family that that didn't have to and and that has to inform how you think about politics yeah i think that's right i would hope the more that we sort of strive to get good people elected it's not just you know because what is good but it's people with the diverse backgrounds and all of those diverse perspectives. Because I think if you don't have those in the room, right, if you're not bringing that perspective, that lived experience into the room, you really can't understand it or you don't, you don't know what you don't know. I, I can't help but think also that there is something not just lucky but different about you that you resolved to graduate from college and from law school and that you push yourself through that. That isn't an easy path, especially when it isn't a well-trod one. Yeah. I always find that, that line of thinking a little tricky for me. Uh, cause I, I don't, <laughs> I don't see myself as very special knowing sort of all of the circumstances. I think it's just, this is true for a lot of people is like our families and our support systems that continue to support and lift us up. Right. Like the, my sister was the person I was calling home to, Every day, Jared, anyone who's been through law school <laughs> knows like what a nightmare the first semester is, especially, and not having anybody who understood that at all around me, but for her to just sit there and listen, right, for like hours, and I cried, I want to come home. <laughs> um, the support system, I think, for me has been, and just being surrounded by, I've been very blessed to be surrounded by amazing people somehow who seem to want to see my success, um, so that I, I feel very grateful for that. But also, when someone like you does climb up a little bit, it has all of these effects for the people around you, right? The ability to help others, you know, just with the knowledge that you gain, the different perspective on the world, you can see out in a 360 degree way that other people don't have the time to. Isn't that right? Yeah, I hope so. Right. I, I hope that sort of the lived experience that I have not only gives me that perspective, but also gives me the the perspective of why it's so important to help people like me who are trying to make it right or my family back home who's still trying to make it. I, I hope I bring that to the table. Well, tell me a little bit about as you start to get jobs in policy and in campaigning. Tell me about how your view of the world changes and grows? Beginning in campaigns was sort of like the, you really start to understand the like, you, you don't really want to see how the sausage is made because then you have to start thinking about, well, how do we, we need a different recipe um, <laughs> or process. <laughs> One of the biggest things I think for me that has become very apparent over the last, I would say 16 was a, a, a sort of earth shattering for me in the election 18, um, I worked statewide on an IE campaign in Florida um, for both the governor and the Senate race. So that was a little, was sort of my awakening as to how are we reaching the Latino community? I don't know that we are effectively. The journey from 16 to 18 to 20, I think it sort of became very clear to me that part of the longer I was gone from home, the less I felt like I had any clue what voters back home were actually thinking, right? Even though I was immersed in these huge research projects where we're talking to talking to thousands of voters and and doing all these things, you have no real clue unless you're living it, right? So I think it's been really important for me to to come to visit as often as I can to continue to immerse myself in what's going on back home because I think 
one of the biggest ways my perspective has changed is, is I don't feel like I'm as in touch with what real voters are thinking anymore. And I have to actively make sure that we are doing that. And the sort of hope is that if I can say that enough, maybe all of us try to actively continue to do that. And one thing that I think the country or certain analysts in the country are trying to understand that is you know infinitely complicated, but is this relationship between Latino voters and Trump. And you're seeing in those elections, 16, 18, 20, he comes out of the gate with that sort of real barrage about Mexico and immigrants, really dramatizing the anti-immigrant thread in his ascension to power. But I think that the relationship with Latinos gets more complicated over time as they see him govern and receive a lot of messages of various sorts from him and from other people. How do you understand that relationship generally with Latino voters and Trump? And as you can imagine, I get asked this one a lot, like what happened with Latino voters in 2020? And I think what you're saying is is right, right? Like Trump started off with a message that was anti-immigrant, but when you're saying it in the tone of Mexicans, right, there's a distinct anti-Latino element to the anti-immigrant rhetoric in general. So, and and I think Latinos really felt that in the 2016 election. I think we saw that in, in his numbers with Latino voters, but you're right, you know, there are a lot of things we can say about the Trump campaign in the sort of like buffoonery that they publicly would put out. But there was a strategic element behind their campaign that specifically saw we did not do well with this segment of the voters. We do not have to win those voters. We just have to peel off enough of them. We just have to make enough of them feel like we are not that bad that they can vote for us. And I think that was really their strategy. I mean, we did the the research um, and polling for Eki's research in 2019. And in every single one of those polls, Trump's job approval, which was a poll of only Latino voters, Trump's job approval in those polls was always significantly higher on the economy than it was overall. He could be running, you know, 30% overall, and he was over 50% on jobs in the economy. And then in those same polls, voters were telling us, you know, my top issue or one of my top issues is jobs in the economy. And so, you know, we really start to see these Latino voters in a way, well, I think we've been sort of screaming this from the rooftops for a while, which is like, don't take these voters for granted. There is there is a persuasion element here, which is Latino voters are like every other voter, which is they care about jobs, they care about the economy, they care about being able to pay their rent and put a roof over their head and put food on the table, right? And I think that's what we saw in 2020. And there's nothing more well studied in presidential elections than that relationship between the economy and the vote for the president. It's very dramatic. And Trump did govern in a time until COVID where the economy was growing. And presidents typically just get reelected when times are like that. 2020, I think, surprised people, though with a Latino vote in certain places. When I've talked to a few other guests who were in the same business as you of a Latino voter mobilization and so on, 
some of them attribute that to the lack of canvassing that we did on our side partially. Do you think that was part of it? You guys did a ton of other outreach, but there is something different about door-to-door and that was asymmetric. The other side was doing a lot more canvassing. Yeah. Um, So I will say I am a huge proponent of canvassing. My heart is in field. That's where, you know, I really started to get excited about campaigns and and I will... um, I will live and die on that hill. I think it's yes and. I think yes, it was about the canvassing and it was about the lack of long-term investment in that case. And I've heard and read a a hundred takes about what happened in the Latino community in 2020 and what we need to do in 22. And it's funny because a very small number of those takes actually come from or even include Latino voices in that analysis. But I think one of the narratives that gets missed, and I'll I'll put it this way, because I think the bottom line is that a massive amount of Latino voters across the country contributed to President Biden's win in November. But the house that caught on fire is always going to make the news, while the house that didn't won't. I think the shifts are the sexy thing to talk about, right? We tend to focus on uh, Miami-Dade and the Rio Grande Valley and, and not on the huge win in Arizona, um, we don't look at the fact that 67% of Latina women voted for Biden when, you know, if we're looking at white women, that number drops almost 20 points by 48%. So I think, you know, first of all, there's a lot of positive to focus on, but I'm also not naive. And and I think that people are right. I know that there were a lot of lessons to be learned um, from 20. And I think that one of the narrative that tends to get lost here is that we know that Republicans were able to make inroads with some Latino communities. That was very real. And we should not discount that. That was incredibly real. But the other part of that narrative is they were able to do that by investing long term in paid communications programs, in field programs. You ask any organizer in Miami-Dade, they will tell you that the Trump campaign was there in November 2016 and they never left. They were there doing visibility events. They were there talking to voters. They were out in the open. And I think it really did hurt us in 2020, you know, when we had to pull back not only on voter registration programs, but on these huge canvassing programs, which is the best way that we connect with voters. If anybody asks me, I will say we lost those Latino voters in Miami-Dade long before August, September of 2020. That makes sense. I've rarely seen a person wear as many hats as you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) over the last few years. Can you just talk me through what are your various jobs and about the various organizations that you play a key part in? Yeah, the wear of many hats thing started in 2018. So really post 2016, where I was, I think, sort of for all of us who worked in campaigns, or for a lot of us thought, whatever we have to do, right? However hard I have to work, however many hours I have to put in, whatever it is that we have to do to get this man out of office, we're going to do that because he's causing real harm to real people. Like this is real now. This isn't just, you know, who won on election day. So in 18, 2018, just to walk through a few of my hats, some of which I still wear today, I became the executive director of SEIU Florida, Um, who often anchors huge campaigns in the state of Florida. So that's a good starting place. Ran was running their statewide and uh, electoral campaigns um, into 2018. Simultaneously, they were part of a larger effort called the Win Justice effort, um, which included a number of larger national organizations, Planned Parenthood, Community Change Action, Color of Change, 
um, and a ton of in-state organizations, New Florida Majority and Organized Florida, who are now Florida Rising, the Florida Immigrant Coalition, Dream Defenders. And so they were all running one electoral program, which SEIU Florida was a part of, uh, and needed someone to lead it. So while I'm wearing my executive director hat, um, also start leading this statewide um, independent expenditure program, which was a large scale fielding communications program for the governors and the Senate race in 2018. So did that, we lost. <laughs> that was a tough lesson, but also is sort of where, I mean, 10,000 votes, right? Where I, I faced the stark realization of asking yourself, what more could we have done? Because it really did felt like we did absolutely everything. Um, and for me, the answer was, I need to go get my people. I need, I need to go talk to Latino voters. Because if you looked at the Miami-Dade Latino voter numbers in 2018, 2020 wasn't as big of a shock to you because that sort of drift and that sort of erosion started in, it was evident in 2018. I'm sure it started long before 2018, but very evident in 2018. And remember at this time, the Trump campaign has been on the ground for about two years now, full time. So went and decided to start Somos, decided to start a Latino voter organization where I could just think full time about how are we reaching Latino voters? Are we reaching them? Is it the right message? What's the right way to do it? Somos, as you say, votantes. Mm-hmm. How do you, we are voters? We are voters, yes. Why do you pick that name? There seems to be a whole lot of names along those lines. Mi familia vota. Did you think about that particularly? Yeah, I did actually. And, and uh, actually fought for the name because I think there was some you know, concern about like, if it's too, too Latino of a name, right? Can people pronounce it? Um, but for me, it was really important that um, it be in Spanish. Um, and it was really important that the the concept of we are voters, the concept of somos votantes was really important for me, because I think we talk a lot about the Latino community is not monolithic, right? And, and that's right, right? We are Colombians and Ecuadorians and Mexicans and Nicaraguans, and we're all of these things. And there's not a central Latino identity. And so for me, We Are Voters was really trying to create or what I hope one day we will create an identity for Latinos that is one of the most important things we do is get out to vote. That That is something that we do as a people. Um, and we're not there yet. I think if you look at the latest catalyst analysis that came out, um, it was only 50%. Only half of Latino voters came out to vote. We were we trailed every other demographic significantly. And so I think for me, that that's the goal, right, is to get us to a, an identity of being voters. I'm wondering about, you know, how how you're doing sort of in your career as you see Trump get elected, you see big statewide losses, disappointing losses in Florida and Georgia in 18 in 2020, we won the big one, but disappointments in Senate races and down ballot congressional races all around the country. How are you now seeing American politics? It's a big fight between what feels to me like really different sides. 16 surprised us all. 18 was amazing, but also there were some losses in there. And then 20, I think the same, right? It was, we won the presidency. That was amazing. Having worked uh, on 
the Arizona statewide campaign on the IE side, like the sort of relief I felt around Arizona was intense. And I sort of came out of election day. I mean, we had the whole, there was the entire thing of counting the votes and all of that. But I think coming in out of election day, I was still very concerned about what does this mean, right? Having seen what happened with the Latino vote, I mean, Miami-Dade came in very quickly and I immediately texted one of my colleagues and said, we lost Florida, right? Like that, knowing within minutes that that had happened. One of the biggest things for me, and it's the question, right, is like, would we be able to govern in such a polarizing time and in such a polarizing place? And would we be able to give people what they were wanting coming out of this election, give voters? Because one of the biggest themes and narratives that we heard from voters in 2020 was that they were so exhausted by the negativity, both from the Trump administration, but also from electoral campaigning and politics. All they were ever hearing from us was negative. There was this question mark for me about whether we would be able to meet voters in a positive way. And would they be open to that in such a polarizing environment? And I think that's, I'm actually very excited right now about I don't know that I felt this excited in November 2020, but um, I feel very excited now seeing everything that the Biden administration is doing, because I think it is the first time in a long time that we as Democrats have been able to take a breath and say, look at all these amazing things and amazing wins that we're bringing in for real people. These things, we talk about them as policies, like we talk about the American Rescue Plan as a policy, but the reality is that It's on track to cut Latino poverty by 40%, and it put real money in real people's pockets so that they could actually pay their rent and pay their mortgage and buy food. And those are real things that people are experiencing. They're not experiencing them as some policy wonky idea. So I'm excited about that, and I think it's a huge opportunity as Democrats that we have. But for me, the sort of counter is that it's also a huge responsibility to make sure that voters are connecting those dots. I feel much more hopeful now than I did at the end of 2020 because I see all of the positive things that we are able to make happen right now. And my hope is that we we are actually talking to our voters about that so that that it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy of only negativity. You only talk to me when there is something negative to say. It feels to me like so much hangs in the balance still on a couple votes, you know, voting reform, infrastructure, immigration reform, so many major, gigantic, ambitious proposals that are lined up, but dependent on absolute democratic unity or a whisper of a chance of some compromise on some of them, right, with the other side, which doesn't seem to be behaving like even half a loaf is a possibility, right? So you you look at that politics and it just seems enormously risky to come up short. I think that's why it's so important for me that we're talking to voters right now about these things like the American jobs plan, right? The things that are, that are in these policies, like we're seeing policies, but people are seeing real, like what could be real positive impact and change on their life, but they're not just going to organically research this, right? We actually have to be telling people out there telling these voters about all of the amazing things that they could have if their representative votes yes, if their senator votes yes, and helping them to connect those dots and giving them the tools that they need to do that. Because I think you're right. Like at the end of the day, it comes down to one or two votes and how, you know, one or one or two people votes. And 
whether one or two people votes yes or no could have been, did we cut Latino poverty by 40% or not? Right. Which is why if, if you ever phrase the vote that way and made people vote on the actual underlying impact that they were going to have and, and not some like random bill title, um, then I, I think it would help people connect the dots. But it, yeah, it is it is incredibly scary. And you can also kind of work backward to like six Senate races that went the wrong way. And if we had just been able to somehow win a few of those the margin of error would be so much easier. Yeah. And I think that raises the good point of why, for me, elections themselves are so important. Because for me, it's very important that Somos has centered itself as we are a Latino voter organization. And bottom line, our goal is to win elections. That's what we do. And and I know, and I hear this a lot as I work with you know groups, is that elections aren't everything. And I totally agree. Elections aren't everything. It can't just be all about election day. It has to be about what comes after. But elections are so important. Elections are a winner-take-all, sort of like Super Bowl-esque type day. And the outcome of that day determines whether we get to pass these things or whether we don't. I know elections are in everything, but for me, elections are pretty damn important. Unquestionably. Civic Strategy Group. Mm-hmm. You're vice president of this thing. What, what is it? Yeah. So it is a consulting firm. It's a political consulting firm. I think we have about 20 staff right now. Um, but really the way that I got linked up with civics was coming out of 18, Karen Hicks, um, who is the president of Civic Strategy Group, is someone that I had worked it with during my time at SEIU. Same with Andy Reynolds um, and Anthony Frankel, a sort of this like post-SEIU consulting firm. Is this Karen Hicks out of New Hampshire? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Okay. I've worked with her. Yeah, she's amazing. And she, um, very grateful. She, after the 2018 election, I had been sort of having these conversations, even pre-election about I don't know that we're doing enough to reach Latino voters. And, and I don't know that there is someone who's thinking about Latino voters 24-7 in a way that is thinking about strategically moving them to the polls on a national scale, right? There are a ton of groups who are doing amazing work on, uh, on state levels and and amazing groups like Mi Familia Vota, like Voto Latino, who are doing this. But I I felt like the skill I really brought was these, these statewide campaigns that I had run. And like, could we think about these sorts of large level statewide campaigns um, for Latino voters only. And so I had discussed this um, with them and they really gave me the opportunity post 18 and said, you know, if you are serious about doing this, we will bring you on and incubate Somos while you try to get it off the ground so that, you know, you're not missing paychecks. Yeah, they took a bit of a risk on me, and turns out like it was it, it was great. Um, and and I still I think the sort of draw for that for me is that I get to run Somos, but also get to wear all these other hats because I work for a consulting firm, and so like we can do that. And so I didn't have to give up like the everything else I think is important that we need to do in you know trying to get Somos up and off the ground. Uh, I read that you guys raised twenty three million dollars or something like that. Across yeah. So where's that coming from? How did you do that? That's not a, a a modest sum. Yeah. So we actually it was 23 million for our PAC and our C4 political and then another 10 million um, for our um, voter education primary purpose work. 
So $33 million in Somos's first like real year running program, which was kind of my like five or 10 year plan, not my <laughs> one year plan. Um, well, there was a but, lot at stake. Yeah, people, and I think, yeah, exactly. It really highlighted the importance of the sort of, I, I think the, the massive investment that's needed um, and, you know, highlights the, the need for this sort of investment. And so I had created a lot of relationships in the million hats I wore before 2020. So really grateful to have been able to raise money from organizations like SEIU, from organizations like America Votes, um, who were, you know, really, really incredibly supportive and helpful in the work that we were doing. And then we also, you know, raised money from other sources. You know, we when Bloomberg was investing in Florida, you know, they were like, how do we reach out to Latino voters? Like, let me help you do that. <laughs> um so we were able to raise from, I think, a lot of sources. And it was a lot of, I'm really, really proud of the individual donor program we were able to put together um, through a digital fundraising effort. And I will say that when I went into it, the line I heard from people was, Latinos do not give. That is, that's not the sort of like space that they take up. And so I, um, of course, in my like, I'm going to prove everybody wrong way. I'm really proud of the the effort that we were able to put together to put a small dollar Latino fundraising effort together. You know, can we come together and do all of this? And it was through things like selfie videos from my dad, you know, asking people to give to the organization and talking about the importance of voting, um, which for me was really cool because I've always said that um, at its core, Somos's mission is how are we getting people like my dad out to vote? Um, so to have him actually involved in the effort was pretty cool. That is one of the things that sits in my brain with fear right now is that that enormous effort we made to oust Trump gives us a time to relax politically. And you've talked about like the investment is so much more valuable if it's ongoing, like Trump being in Miami-Dade. Do we have that same energy that we can raise another $33 million for things like your work? now in preparation for 2022 and 2024 or has or has that become harder raising money has definitely become harder this year i think we are in a much better place than we were post 2016 which is that people are definitely thinking about the fact that we need this long-term organizing and investment especially as it relates to the latino vote and so i think we're in a good place there it, it has been a lot harder to raise money. And I'm in rooms talking about this often, which is the importance of doing it now, right? Like I think the game changer for 22 is going to be what are the efforts we're putting in between June 2021 and June 2022 when the political program really starts moving, right? The electoral program really starts moving. What happens in that 12-month span will decide the 2022 election. And so I think it is incredibly important that we're investing in it from a paid communication standpoint, from an organizing and field standpoint. Um, and, and I'm sort of saying that all the time to funders. Um, and so I hope if any funders are listening, feel free to reach out. I am more than happy to talk to you about, uh, you know, the exciting work that Somos is already moving because we are up and running with paid communications program around the American Rescue Plan or around the American Jobs Plan. Um, so I'm excited about that, but it's definitely needed um, at a much larger scale and across our progressive infrastructure. When you think about the progressive infrastructure, particularly in the Latino community, what are the other important 
allies for your organization, other important groups that are doing good work? Yeah, I mean, there are so many groups doing good work, right? I've And I've been able to work very closely with them. I think at a national level, national groups like Mi Familia Vota, like Voto Latino, um, who I think Voto Latino has done an amazing job of really sort of establishing an online digital presence and in their digital voter registration efforts, they sort of pioneered the way there. Um, and Somos does not do voter registration. So I'm so incredibly like happy about the efforts they're doing. But I think really want to lift up to, I think part of where, you know, Somos's strongest partnerships have been, have been able, as we're able to work with groups in state, right? Because when I talked about earlier, you know, what is the perspectives that people are bringing to the strategy table, have loved being able to work with groups like Florida Rising, like Lucha in Arizona. When I'm working with those groups, it's really not just Latinos as the sort of labor force behind the campaign, which is incredibly important, but also the strategy behind the campaign, the sort of brain trust behind the campaign. And there are organizations like that all across you know, the country. Um, I think any state you look at, you're, you're going to really see organizations like that. Um, and I'm going to get in trouble now for mentioning two and not the others, but <laughs> very grateful for all of our partnerships. <laughs> Do you ever consider being a candidate yourself for elected office? I love campaigns uh, and I love the sort of behind the scenes work. If you had asked me this five years ago, I'd always said I would never consider running for office. Last year, particularly in the Kansas Senate race, um, it was the it was the first time I'd kind of been jarred into this place of like, the candidates last year were amazing. But just I was so angry about that Senate race, particularly because the senator who ended up winning um, was the um, congressional representative from my district in Kansas. And I just know how sort of badly he has treated constituents and how terrible the policies that he's implemented and, and how much he sort of ignored the, the, the real voters on the ground and the issues that they're facing. And it was sort of the first time that I was like, you know, maybe one day I'll be mad enough. But uh, short answer, no, I, I will probably never run for office. <laughs> I mean, did you read that book, What's the Matter with Kansas? I did read the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? What is the matter? Do you think that gets it right? Why are, why are states like Kansas voting for Republicans? You know, I think there's a lot to be said about the messaging that we've already talked about, which was like around jobs in the economy and what does that look like? And I think, that, you know, it gets to the point of the, the economy in Kansas for a long time was really terrible. And why were we still voting for people and that were doing this? And I think for me, the bottom line is like, it's not what's the matter with Kansas. It's what's the matter with the investment in Kansas. Um, and I'll give an example. It's um, and I've been talking a lot and thinking about a lot about how are we talking to rural communities? And for Somos, that means how are we talking to Latino voters in rural communities? And are we reaching them with our messaging? And are we actually trying to get them to vote? Um, my dad last year, he lives in the liberal Kansas is in the only Hispanic majority state Senate district in Kansas. Um, last year, he had a state Senate candidate knock on his door. Edgar Pando. And it was the, apparently, as he told me, the first time a candidate has ever knocked on his door before. <laughs> and he was so excited about it. And he <laughs> called me like three times to be like, he said this. And then I said this. And, you know, I should have asked him this. And, 
So that sort of engagement matters to people. And, and I don't think in states like Kansas, we have done a good a job as we can do in reaching those voters. And so I think the challenge I would I would bring it back to us is, are we getting our message out there to these voters about what we stand for um, and what positive impact our candidates could have on their lives? And I think if we ask ourselves that, honestly, I don't know that we are. What is a Fannie Lou Hamer fellow? <laughs> the Fannie Lou Hamer Fellowship. Oh, I'm so um, honored to have been included in the inaugural class of the Fannie Lou Hamer Fellowship through the Sandler Phillips Center. Steve Phillips and Susan Sandler have just been amazing. They brought together what is basically a group of fellows who they see as up and comers, you know, in the progressive community who they want to make sure develop really tight bonds with each other. Um, and also that they can sort of help train up. What are the skills that we need to help us be more successful? Um, so that's what the fellowship has been. And, and I can say it has actually been really amazing. I came into the fellowship really thinking, seeing the other fellows' bios as they were put out, like, I don't know that I belong with this group. Everyone feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I left really feeling like we were a very tight-knit group um, who can rely on each other, right? I, I won't I won't hesitate to pick up the phone and call one of them if I have a question or let's brainstorm this together. So that's been a really amazing experience and glad I had the opportunity to do it. It sounds like you get brought together, but what are the benefits? Yeah, we get brought together, but it's also in our gatherings, it's things like um, how to become better at fundraising. What does building an organizational budget look like? Um, how to present yourselves in interviews and you know help build communication skills. It really is sort of skills building and training to help us be more successful. Who are a few other people and what are they doing that are also fellows along with you? There are quite a few of us. So Natalie Montelongo, who was formerly with the, uh, worked on Julian Castro's campaign and is now working at the White House. She is part of the fellowship group. Um, I think for me, it was really amazing. I had sort of like seen her from afar and really admired Julian's campaign for being one of the, you know, the, the first campaigns to really get out, like put themselves out there about here's real issues that voters are facing in a not wonky way, right? In a way that, that I thought people really connected with, especially in the Latino community. So um, she's part of the, the fellowship group. Amazing um, to be with her. Maya Castillo, who um, works with New Virginia Majority and just sort of brings the most academic lenses to things that I think I've ever heard, which is really amazing. She reads like a million books a year. And so being able to work with her has been amazing. Um, Sia Price, who's a delegate for Virginia. So also having the sort of experience of people who are in legislative session right now, having to, you know, to move all of these things that are moving. Um, so there's just so many amazing um, people who are a part of this fellowship really has been great to sort of see us all on one Zoom talking about things like how to be better fundraisers, but also sharing like, how do I overcome imposter syndrome? How do I not feel like this every time I walk in a room? Um, so it's been a great experience. Where do you want to take your career? I mean, it sounds like you're, you got your hands full at the moment with a, with a multi-million dollar pack and you know, <laughs> C4 and a few other things and a role in a consulting firm, but what, what would you like to see into your future? My 10-year plan is really SOMOS, right? Is how do we build this into really this sort of national powerhouse of Latino power building um, that centers elections, 
constantly? How are we constantly thinking about how we're growing the electorate and getting people out to vote? And so for me, it really is about SOMOS for the next, I think, foreseeable future and building that out. I'm, I'm really in it for the long haul. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? There have been a lot of takes about what the Latino vote means, what 2020 means. And and I hope that the lesson that people are taking from 2020 about Latino voters is not, we need to deprioritize those voters because they're not voting for us. It really needs to be, how are we increasing the amount of investment in these communities because they are going to be so important in upcoming elections and because investment worked. Investment works to move voters. And Latino voters are no different from other voters. And I hope the the sort of second big thing that I hope people take away is that I really hope we start to hear more about Latino voters in persuasion conversations and not just mobilization conversations. You know, we should be talking to our voters over the next two and four and six and eight and 10 years about all of the amazing things happening and why they should be voting for Democrats. Right. What what is it about Democrats that they can relate to? And and I hope that we get out there and persuade those voters and get them out to vote with us in 22. Um, And that's what I'll be working on. Are there Latino political media entities that you recommend for people that want to see politics through the Latino lens? Yes, I think we can always use more investment in that space. But I think one organization that is really sort of the shining star and is doing it incredibly well has been Pulso, um, who has done a great job of sort of centering Latino voters constantly, um, but also sort of thinking about what are the different age categories we should be thinking about with Latino voters, right? There's an incredibly young population we can be reaching. Are we reaching them? Are we reaching them with the right message? Um, Are we reaching them with political news? Um, Because I think there's often a, a... thought out there that young Latino voters or Latino voters in general don't understand politics. And that's just not true. Latino voters are incredibly interested in politics, um, as long as we're presenting it in a way that's actually um, enjoyable and understandable for them. And so I think Pulso has done a great job about that and definitely recommend um, giving them a listen and a look. Well, Melissa, it's been an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? I think that's it for me. Thank you so much. Um, I was incredibly nervous coming into this. So thank you for sort of putting me at ease uh, and helping me through. This is my first podcast. So well, you didn't appear nervous to me at all. That was Melissa Morales. She's at SomosVotantes.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.